Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 28 of History on Fire. Today we are going to be playing with part 3 of a three-part series about Jack Johnson. So this is the final segment in this series. If you haven't checked out part 1 and 2 yet, please do so, because it may help this part of the story make more sense. Before we get going, I want to do a couple of things. I want to... uh, Thank some of the folks that keep the lights on around here. If you're absolutely allergic to ads and you cannot tolerate the idea, feel free to drop at uh, the Patreon for History on Fire. There's a link in the episode notes. For $5 a month or more, uh, you can get access to ad-free versions of these episodes. If you don't mind ads, and maybe you think that you can actually pick up some tips about some useful products, then stick around for a little bit while I say thank you to a few folks. Let's start out with a big shout out to Flaviar. Flaviar is the world's largest online club of spirits enthusiasts. These guys have compiled an amazing collection of more than 15,000 spirits. Members Every quarter receive a complimentary themed tasting box of spirits, anything from whiskey, bourbon, you name it, and can also purchase additional tasting boxes at members-only prices. So basically what you're getting is uh, the equivalent of a menu sampler. You get to sample a few different spirits, so that if one of them particularly strikes your fancy, then you can order and purchase a full-size bottle. A bottle, but in this way you get to try before you commit to buying a bottle. Normally, these guys have a waiting list, but they have arranged priority access for History on Fire listeners. So, if you like to check them out, please go to flaviar.com forward slash exclusive and use the coupon code HISTORY. Again, that's F L A V I A R dot com forward slash exclusive and use the coupon code history also big thank you to vincero our new sponsor for this episode these guys produce high quality watches for affordable prices i just gave uh, to my stepfather a vincero watch for christmas he lost it he really really loved it so good results there excellent feedback These guys have over 5,000 five-star reviews, they offer free first-class shipping, and have a two-year warranty. 
So if you like to check them out, you are into watches, but you're not into paying crazy amounts of money, visit getthewatch.net today to see Vincero's stunning collection. And if you use the promo code HISTORY, you will receive 15% off your very own Vincero watch. So go to getthewatch.net and use the code HISTORY. This episode is also brought to you by blueapron.com. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They deliver high-quality ingredients and recipes right to your door for affordable prices. So check them out and find out for yourself if you could benefit from their services. Personally, I love them. Not only because they sponsor the podcast and they have committed to sponsoring 15 episodes in 2018, but just because the quality of their food is amazing. I'm having Blue Apron meals about three times a week. I still haven't run into a single meal I did not enjoy. The quality is unreal. Variety is great. I really cannot speak highly enough about these guys. Um, Even weeks when, uh, like, I've ordered more meals than they send me just because I like, you know, it's really, really good stuff. I just... I almost have to restrain myself because it's almost sound fake when you're doing an ad for somebody and you sound so overly enthusiastic, but awesome food. Blue Apron is treating History on Fire listeners to their first dinner at $30 value if you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Big shout out to the How It Began podcast, How It Began, A History of the Modern World, by Brad Harris. Brad holds a PhD in the history of science and technology from Stanford University. He has really high production quality, but more importantly, the content of his podcast is quite awesome. Each episode is rigorously researched and very well written. Uh, What Brad does in this podcast is cover many of the most important scientific, technological, and cultural inventions since, you know, from way back in the day down to the present. Anything from the history of the internet to how the companionship between early humans and wolves led to dog breeding to, you know, you name it. There are so many good topics out there. Uh, worth checking it out, you know, like all podcasts, it's out there, it's free. So check it out on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you happen to listen. Or you can just check them out at his website, howitbegin.com. Also, big, big thank you to my two regular sponsors who have been in my corner since day one. Datsusara and Donnit. Datsusara, well, I'll make it simple. If you find yourself in need of a backpack or some kind of travel bag, check out the Datsusara website first, dsgear.com, the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. Because really, I doubt you can find something much better than this. I love Datsusara product. I'm wearing, you know, I'm using Datsusara. I'm about to go on uh, up to Big Bear to take my daughter on vacation for a few days, and I will be carrying nothing but Datsusara bags. So I'm not telling you to buy stuff you don't need. You know, if you don't need bags, then you don't need them. That's where it's at. But if you do think you may have to buy a bag or a backpack or something like that, 
check that Susara first. Maybe a good idea. In regards to Onnit, Onnit has an incredible variety of products, from supplements to workout gear, uh, clothes, all sorts of other goodies. So check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount on anything you buy. I honestly doubt that if you go through the whole Onnit website, I would honestly doubt that you don't find something to your liking. There are just so many things. Um, super high quality products. Check them out. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. The words with which I ended part two of this series very much set the stage for this third and final episode. So in case it has been too long since you listened last, let's go back to them now. Here is what I said at the end of episode 2. If Jack Johnson could crush the best white boxers in the world, then white supremacy was just a myth. But this was not a myth most people were ready to give up. Their worldview their very sense of identity depended on the unshakable conviction that any member of the white race to be superior to any member of darker races. Jack Johnson robbed them of this. Not only was he a black man, that was bad enough, but to add insult to injury he was a defiant black man who refused to recite his prescribed inferior social role. He took Santa Claus away from them and they couldn't tolerate it so they would do everything, legally and illegally, to stop him. So that's where we are. They would do everything, legally and illegally, to stop him. What happened next in our story is precisely a chronicle of these efforts to hasten the downfall of Jack Johnson. On the very day after the fight, on July 5th, there was an immediate effort to block the distribution of the fight footage. It was bad enough that Johnson had won the fight, it was bad enough that 20,000 some people had seen it live, but many, many people in the United States wanted to make sure that no one else would get to see this fight. Leading the charge was the United Society of Christian Endeavor. This was an organization that counted over 4 million members, which in the United States of the 1910s, that was an insane large amount. They began a letter-writing campaign, writing to governors of every state, trying to convince them to um, prevent screening of the fight footage in their state. They wrote, specifically they wrote a telegram to them that went something like this. Race riots and murder in many places following announcement of Johnson's victory in prize fight. These results will be multiplied many times fold by moving picture exhibitions. Will you join other governors in recommending prohibition of these demoralizing shows? Save our young people. Wire answer. The reason for the reformers wanting to ban the film of the fight was, well, there are actually two separate reasons. On one hand, you had uh, the anti-vice moralists who argue that uh, 
boxing was uh, bad for the soul, that it was an immoral endeavor, that it was popular among the lower strata of society, that kind of stuff. You know, the same people were trying to ban alcohol, were the same people were trying to ban prostitution, you know, a lot of, they essentially were out of it for moral reasons. The second group was made by racists who had nothing against boxing before, prior to this fight, but now they did. So it's a combination. Now, sometimes these are the same people who are both moralist and racist. In some cases, they belong to two different groups. In any case, many states responded to this pressure and banned the screening of the fight. Many governors and even mayors passed bans within their jurisdictions. At this time, you may recall that the United States was occupying the Philippines, and the authorities there, they also banned footage of the fight in the Philippines because the municipal board there was, I quote, in fear of the effect on the Filipinos. The San Francisco Examiner at this time said that it was wrong for women and children to see, I quote, members of their own race beaten into physical disability by a gigantic negro. Author Randy Roberts makes the obvious point here. Uh, here is what he says. Why, indeed, was there no talk of censorship of printed material about the fight before the results was known? As long as many whites believed that Jeffries would win, the fight was seen as an acceptable contest between the races. Now, with Jeffries bruised and defeated, the same white writers were saying that it was wrong to see any racial significance in the result. So that's... You know, this is a fight that really changes attitudes about boxing in, in a big way. Two weeks after the fight, former President Theodore Roosevelt, whom we have covered extensively in a three-part series earlier on in uh, History on Fire, now, Roosevelt, he was a big-time combat sport fan. He loved boxing. He had done it himself quite a bit. He had stated that boxing was a great sport, and uh, to quote his words, he said that boxing was not half as brutalizing or demoralizing as many forms of big business. So Roosevelt, if anybody would be a supporter of boxing at this time, would be Roosevelt. But that was not the case. He wrote an article for a magazine called The Outlook, in which he lent his support to banning not just moving pictures of boxing matches, but a complete ban on all prize fights in the United States. He primarily focused on the gambling that was going on surrounding the boxing world, which is something that, I mean, still goes on to this day. There's a lot of shady boxing things that happen because of the vast amount of money that is past the hands because of gambling around surrounding boxing results. But one of the things that's strange about Roosevelt's idea is that is the timing. I mean, let's see what he says first. Here are his words. He says, I sincerely trust that public sentiment will be so aroused and will make itself felt so effectively is to guarantee that this is the last prize fight to take place in the United States. Which is kind of funny because like both 
Jack Johnson actually liked Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Johnson has the following to say about meeting with Roosevelt in more than one occasion. He said, The former president and I met several times. Our discussions were somewhat different from those which I've had with the most eminent personages. Because between us, of course, there was a closer and more intelligent association of interests. Roosevelt displayed not only keen interest in sports, but he could discuss them intelligently, and he had a fund of knowledge concerning ring events that surprised me. So, in light of the fact that Roosevelt was a fight fan, in light of the fact that Jack Johnson liked Roosevelt, it's possible that Theodore Roosevelt's reason for calling for a ban was not steeped in racism, but the effect was the same, because at a time when, due to the racism and to the fact that now the heavyweight champion was black, many people began advocating a crackdown on boxing, well, Roosevelt's timing was at the very least suspect. It was kind of a weird moment to be calling for a ban on boxing. You know, why not do it prior to this? Why not do it when there were white heavyweight champions? In fact, the opponent to the ban pointed precisely to this uh, hypocrisy of the anti-fight activists. Their rationale was, you know, if, if it's true that they are not doing it for racist reasons, but the main... Because one of the arguments that people had advanced is, look, we are, we are doing just because we want to avoid uh, race riots. Look at what happened as soon as the fight was over. There were these race riots all over the US, some people died, lots of property was damaged, there was major conflict between whites and blacks. We just want to avoid that, so we don't want the footage of the fight to be seen in theaters, because you would just kind of keep stoking the fire, keep that flame of ethnic conflict alive. We, we don't want that. So we're not racist, we're just trying to avoid problems. Well, that made sense. That could be a sensible argument, but many people weren't buying it. They said, well, if that's the real reason, why did the same people who are calling for a ban on the Jack Johnson fight footage, why did they have no problems to the staging of the play The Clansman by Thomas Dixon, which glorified the KKK, and portrayed blacks during Reconstruction as rapists and absolutely evil? Did that play not arise racial tensions? That, you know, that was totally fine, but a boxing match was a problem? So the Richmond Planet wrote that the moral outrage against the fight film, but the complete silence about lynching, was, I quote, a form of hypocrisy that shames the devil. In a bunch of cities in the US, they did show the films, they did show the fight, and there were no riots, demonstrating that some of these fears were unfounded. But in an effort to stop this from happening in the future, not to have to rely on the goodwill of some governors, but just to ban um, fight footage in movie theaters, because you know, as long as you have a black heavyweight champion, the odds are high that the same result will repeat over and over. A bill was introduced in Congress to ban boxing movies in theaters altogether. Now, up until now, Congress had refused to consider bills eliminating the films of fights from theaters. 
but now there was more interest in order to avoid the embarrassment of having to watch this painful fight again and again. In the debate about whether to enact the ban or not, there was one congressman by the name of Roddenberry, who referred to Jack Johnson as, I quote, an African biped beast, and he said, no man descended from the old Saxon race can look upon that kind of contest without abhorrence and disgust. So, to Roddenberry's satisfaction, eventually the ban was passed in 1912. The ban was not a complete ban on showing fight films, but it came close because it did not allow for the film of the fights to be transported across state lines to be shown in movies. So basically you could only see the fight footage within the state where the fight had taken place. This ban, which was passed in 1912, would not be lifted until 1940. Now it's totally obvious that this law was created specifically for Jack Johnson. And just to clarify that Americans weren't the only ones feeling this way, the British also banned the film of the fights from most of their colonial possessions for fear their darker-skinned people, you know, the very darker-skinned people they colonize, would may get ideas by watching Jack Johnson beat a white man. Now, I'm beginning to run the risk of sounding like a broken record here, because obviously racism is a big theme in this story. But while it is true that racism is obviously a big part of this tale, so it would be very easy to mistake Jack Johnson's story simply as a tale of someone standing up to racism. And it's about that, for sure. But it's also about a lot more. Because as much Jack Johnson stared down white supremacy, he also battled those black people who insisted that he behaved like a hard-working, God-fearing role model. The vast majority of African Americans worship Jack Johnson. His victory was one of the greatest sources of ethnic pride for them. And, you know, the boxing war that stacked the odds against black fighters, and Jack Johnson had managed to triumph anyway. But there was a minority of upper-class black people who were scared of Jack Johnson, and definitely didn't want him anywhere around their daughters. I've already mentioned in previous episodes the critiques of Jack Johnson leveled by, pe- by people like Booker T. Washington. In many ways, Booker T.'s Washington criticism mirror the fears that the black middle class had regarding Johnson. You know, they wanted him to behave in a respectable fashion uh, for the sake of avoiding giving white people an excuse to give black people a bad name. But expecting Jack Johnson to behave was hopeless. Johnson wasn't about to trade a cage for another. He wouldn't be anyone's puppet. He would have no master telling him how to live, not white ones, but no black ones either. Johnson's approach was like, look man, I'm not your slave. I'm not the slave of white people. I'm not the slave of black people either. I'm my own man. Much in the same way that Johnson refused to cater to white expectations, 
he also didn't want to, ca to cater to black expectations. His approach was very much, uh, you know, if you like it, great. If you not, too bad. So in some way, even more than a story of a guy fighting racism, which his story definitely is, but even more than that, his story is the tale of a man who, in spite of a time and place that would not allow it, was on a defiant quest to be free and live life on his own terms in a social contest that made that very difficult. The actor James Earl Jones had this to say about Johnson. He said, Jack didn't tow any lines. I wouldn't say that's what got him in trouble. I think the society was in trouble. And Jack was just being himself. Here are another couple of quotes by some authors who have written books about Jack Johnson. Or here is uh, Al Tony Gilmore. He said, He refused to allow anyone, white or black, or any laws and customs to dictate his place in society or the manner in which he should live. And author Jeffrey Ward adds, he embodied American individualism in its purest form. Nothing, no law or custom, no person, white or black, male or female, could keep him for long from whatever he wanted. He was in the great American tradition of self-invented man. That's kind of, for me personally, that's what I dig about Jack Johnson. That's what makes the history fascinating. That, you know, it's tough enough today to live life on your own terms, to just carve for yourself a path in spite of what society may think. But for a black male at the beginning of the 1900s, that was that was quite an act. But let's look at some of the problems with Jack Johnson's as well, some of the troubling parts of his life. Now, most people who never attain great fame and success are regularly puzzled as to why so many celebrities crack under the weight of their success. I mean, even that sentence the weight of their success. Even that just seems ridiculous on the surface. What weight? I mean, what's so hard about making money and enjoying the spotlight? On the surface, nothing. But the evidence obviously tells a different story. You know, how many, how many stories of celebrities have we ever heard of who completely crack under pressure? Now, the combination of living under public scrutiny of uh, expectations being placed on you from every direction, of everyone wanting something from you, eventually takes a toll, usually. As they say in that great philosophical source of inspiration, which is the screenplay of the 1982 version of Conan the Barbarian, I'm going to quote, all manner of pleasures and diversions were indulged. Wealth can be wonderful, but you know, success can test one's mettle as surely as the strongest adversary. Well, you know I was going to find a way to quote Conan the Barbarian, one of my favorite movies of all times, but you know, this particular quote very much describe what the next few months in Jack Johnson's life look like. For a while, it was an endless party. He took 
Etta Dorea to Atlantic City with him, along with several other women. Um, he kept doing this, uh, he kept making money doing shows where he would sing, he would dance, he would shadow box, he, um, but he started doing that a little too much. You know, he figured, let's strike the iron while it's hot. I'm the heavyweight champion. Everybody wants to see me. Everybody's ready to pay down money. So he kept booking dates after dates to put on the shows, but he very quickly started doing it too much. You know, quickly he was overworked and started getting messed up by being in the spotlight a bit too long. He kept receiving in the mail regularly death threats. One guy showed up at a boxing event that Jack Johnson was attending with a gun couldn't get close enough to Johnson, so he walked into a saloon and cursed Jack Johnson's name. When a black customer there complained with him about his racist rant, the guy just pulled out his gun and shot him dead. So, you know, this is the kind of stories that Johnson had to hear all day long. So around this time, Johnson started drinking heavy. Author Randy Roberts captures his mood at this time in the following sentence. He says, For Johnson, the constant movement, lack of sleep, and excessive drinking took a physical and mental toll. There were rumors that he suffered a nervous breakdown, and in truth, he was in a highly agitated state, subject to swift and dramatic changes in temperament. And Roberts also adds, he kept irregular hours, drinking often, and sleeping little. And before too long, the effects of this lifestyle began to show. During some of his performances, he would forget some of his lines. He looked worn out. He kind of had reached the bottom of the barrel of his physical and mental energies. You know, he needed a break and he wasn't giving himself one, which was a big mistake. So this is where the least forgivable element in Jack Johnson's life shows up. His uh, sometimes violent relationship with some of the ladies in his life. Now, I mentioned before, I hinted at this topic in a previous episode. And as I've said before, to be entirely fair, these same ladies were often very violent with him. So it wasn't just the simple story of the abusive guy who takes it out on his women. Some of these ladies, they went from, you know, crashing a chair on his head to slapping him to one lady shot him with a gun. So, you know, that was the social context in which he moved. Men and women around him led a fairly violent life. But still, that doesn't justify his fight with uh, Belle Schreiber when he slapped her and then she left. After she left, a few weeks later, she sent him a telegram saying that she had lost her job in the brothel where she worked because the madam there found out that she had sex with Jack Johnson and so uh, she fired her. So Johnson, despite her previous fight, sent her some money for a train to Chicago, met her there, and helped her set up her own brothel by financing it. His other lady of this moment, Etta Drea, ended up in the hospital with bruises. Now, here is where the story, depending on who you believe, Jack Johnson said that she was beaten by the chauffeur. Uh, the chauffeur who had fallen in love with her 
and had tried to get her away from Jack Johnson. The chauffeur was indeed in love with her, that much we know, but many people believed that instead it was Johnson who had hit her rather than the chauffeur. So who knows? I mean, you can be sure, but very possible that Johnson did it. Maybe, maybe not. Hard to tell. In any case, later they met up and Johnson's mom disapproved of the relationship with Eta Dorea. She thought that she was just after his fame and money and that she was at least as unfaithful as he was. So mom gave Johnson an ultimatum. He said, you know, either you are with her or you come to see me, but I don't want to be around her. Johnson, however, chose Etta over his birth family. Now, the relationship with his birth family was not completely ruined, I guess. Mom's ultimatum was not as serious as it sounded, but he was definitely strained as a result of this. Very much against the wishes of both families, they were married in 1911, and theirs would definitely be a weird, dysfunctional relationship. Etta's father never spoke to her again. Uh, her mom kept in touch but considered her crazy. In 1911, the, the newly married couple went to the UK to explore the possibility of Johnson defending his title there. While they were there, he and Etta had a rather awkward meeting with somebody we have discussed in a previous episode. They walked into a restaurant for lunch, and who did they run to? They ran into good old Jim Jeffries, you know, the very man that Johnson had beaten in the fight in Nevada, or the most important fight of Johnson's life. Jeffries was there in the restaurant with his wife, having lunch in the same spot of all places. They saw one another, but Jeffries looked the other way. The whole restaurant fell silent, and Johnson and Etta just walked by, went on to their table. Jeffries apparently ate in a hurry and got out. The notion of Johnson fighting in the UK ran into immediate opposition. Some people, this is funny, because again, this idea about the racial ideology of the time was not just an American thing. You know, some people in the UK mentioned that the, the very survival of the British Empire depended on the idea that whites were invincible. The chairman of the London County Council said, the sight of a black man pounding a white man is far from attractive and certainly cannot be considered as a public entertainment. London is not Reno, and in sheer self-respect, London cannot tolerate this bout. So, Home Secretary, who at this time was a rather important political figure, Winston Churchill, prevented Johnson from fighting a British challenger in the UK by saying that boxing was illegal, which... Yeah, aside for all the other boxing bouts that took place in England all the time and in other parts of the UK, and they were allowed to take place, but, you know, Churchill decided to remember, yes, boxing is illegal just for Johnson. 
So in an effort to make a you know make a few bucks, Johnson tried to put on a show in music halls, but he would you know controversy followed him at every step. Back in the U.S. in 1912, Johnson opened in Chicago the Café de Champion. At uh, you know his what was Café de Champion? Café de Champion was a racial racial integrated cabaret slash restaurants where people would go for drinking, eating, dancing. Precisely the kind of place that moral reformers hated. Now, most black people in Chicago loved the idea that a black man could be so successful as a businessman. But not everybody was a fan. Johnson ran into some trouble because on his way back from the UK, he had not reported a piece of jewelry he had bought for his wife while in England. You know, he hadn't declared that customs. So the government went after him for smuggling since he had not paid uh, the import taxes. A former employee of his gave the info against him. So this employee thought that somehow it was a good idea to go back to the Café de Champion. Johnson didn't think it was such a good idea and beat him up. Because apparently punching people was Johnson's way to settle disagreements. In terms of punching people professionally for his career, Johnson really didn't want to fight other black fighters just because there was too little money in it. You know, not enough people paid to see two black fighters fight one another. And on top of it, most of the black fighters at this time were better fighters. So his idea was like, well, you know, many people were criticizing him, saying, hey, you're denying other black boxers opportunities the same way they have done with you, which is true. But at the same time, you can see the logic why he would uh, avoid taking difficult fights for little money against opponents he had already beaten years prior, when instead he could take easier fights for more money. So in 1912, he fought in Vegas against a boxer named Jim Flynn. This Jim Flynn, prior to this fight, had told this manager, I quote, If I lose to this nigger, shoot me. Johnson had already beat him in 1907, but by now Flynn had beaten several prospective white hopes, so he had earned his spot. The day before the match, Johnson received a letter that said, Lie down tomorrow, or we'll string you up. And the letter was signed with three letters that read KKK, which is kind of weird since technically speaking the KKK had been destroyed years earlier, and we are in 1912, just a few years away from the time when the KKK would be officially recreated. But still, it delivered a message. So just to play safe, Johnson started carrying a gun with him at all times, and he had an armed guard. At the beginning of the fight with Flynn, Flynn had yelled at Etta in the audience, Jack Johnson's wife, he said that since she was a white woman, she should cheer for him. Johnson didn't really like this guy talking to his wife, so by round two he had Flynn bleeding from all over his face. He, it was pretty obvious that Johnson was monstrously superior to Flynn. So then he spent a bunch of time during the fight talking to his wife and chatting with other people in the front row, 
and paying attention to pretty much anything else other than what Flynn was doing. Flynn kept fouling him, trying to do anything to put up some desperate defense. He kept trying to headbutt him from the clinch, sometimes even jumping in the air, trying to connect his forehead with Johnson's jaw. But despite this, Johnson stopped him in the ninth round. Despite his victory, Etta was not in a very celebratory mood. She was really lonely, you know, because most white people, as well as most black people, ostracized her. And she knew that many of these people hated her. She had said, I quote, All my misery comes from marrying a black man. Even the Negroes don't respect me. They hate me. Now, that's not entirely true because she had been very depressed to begin with, and had tried suicide in multiple occasions before ever being married to Jack Johnson. But certainly her mental situation was made worse by the pressure that people brought to an interracial marriage in the first decade of the 1900s. Well, okay, make it the second decade of the 1900s by now. Etta was uh, understandably annoyed by Jack's infidelity, since he clearly slept around with lots of women, and making her mood worse, the fact that when her father died, that hit her really hard. So in 1912, at one point, she wrote a letter to her mom saying that Jack had been good to her, actually, that he had tried his best, but she was just too depressed. She wrote, Jack has done all in his power to cure me but it is of no use. Since Papa's death, I've worried myself into my grave. After penning this letter, she put on a cheerful face and sent Jack on an errand out of the house, dismissed their maids with the message, pray for me, and once she was finally alone without anybody around, she shot herself. When Johnson got back home and he saw the police everywhere, you know, he made his way back to the room and found that uh, bloodied up but still alive. She tried to say something to him, but her lips made no sound. So he carried her to the hospital where she died shortly thereafter. Johnson was heartbroken over this. He was in tears after her death, saying that she's the one who had saved him after the Jeffrey fight. He confessed that he felt suicidal after winning the title and after beating Jeffrey. Partially, he was physically wiped out by the many, many rounds in the sun under the Nevada Sound in 100 plus degrees. Partially, the psychological pressure had really put a strain on him. And she was the one who had always got him out of it. He says that taking care of him had probably damaged their further, that, you know, in part of it was his responsibility because she had been taking care of him. So that had put an extra toll on her. So in a weird kind of way, despite all their dysfunctional relationship, they actually really loved each other. As he put it, I thought the word of her and she thought the word of me. Johnson also added, she was murdered by the word, by spiteful tongues, by my enemies, by race hatred, 
she paid the penalty of my being the heavyweight champion of the world. Now, things were a lot more complex than the way Johnson makes them sound. You know, as I mentioned, she was really depressed to begin with. And things have been made worse by the relationship with Johnson. So, you know, him being the heavyweight champion of the world, all the public scrutiny, all the pressure, certainly that played a role too, but there were other factors as well. Newspapers had a field day, writing that this was the inevitable outcome of marriage between a high-class white lady and a black man. The fact that a high-class white lady end up killing herself was like the perfect gift for the newspapers who use these to push their racist message. But this is where things are strange because, you know, few people, actually I haven't read a single account of anybody doubting Johnson's sincerity in his grief, that he really loved this woman and was really broken up about her dying. And yet... It really didn't take him too long to move on. Author Randy Roberts says, The world belongs to the living. It had been Thomas Jefferson's philosophy, and it was Jack Johnson's. Etta was dead and buried. He had cried. But he still had his duties at the Café de Champion, and there was still a bevy of other women who desired to console him. So despite the fact that, as I mentioned, pretty much no one doubts that he had loved his wife in his own way, he had been dating other women at the same time. And he certainly didn't stop now, now that she was dead. In particular, he had been dating a 19-year-old, many people say she was a prostitute, probably that's the case, named Lucille Cameron. There's a tale that says that a singer at the cafe with whom uh, Johnson probably also had the relationship, got jealous for the attention that he had been paying to Lucille Cameron, and during a fight she shot him in the foot. Some people say she didn't shoot him, there was just a big scene, who knows. In any case, some, some drama because of his relationship with these ladies. So barely a month after his wife's suicide, Johnson was in trouble because the mother of Lucille Cameron charged Jack with abducting her daughter. Now, Lucille had told her mother that she definitely wasn't being held against her will and that she was willing and happy to be with Jack. But this was clearly not the message that her mom wanted to hear. She told authorities that she would rather see her daughter spend her life in an insane asylum than see her be, I quote, the plaything of a nigger. Her words, not mine. Authorities were incredibly happy to have any pretext to go after Johnson. So the Lucille mom teamed up with one of the most notoriously corrupted lawyers in the nation and went on a campaign to destroy Johnson. Step one in this operation was to smear Johnson's reputation. So Lucille's mom and their lawyer made up some completely unbelievable tales about Johnson having hypnotic powers to control Lucille via some strange voodoo, and laughing in the mom's face when she asked to see her daughter. In reality, 
Jack had actually helped the mum find Lucille so that they could talk things out. But the newspapers weren't after reality. They were looking for some lurid story about an already controversial public figure, and Lucille's mum gave them all the material they needed. She presented herself as a defenseless, crying mother, cruelly mocked by an evil black wizard who had turned her precious innocent daughter into a sex slave. That's basically the story that she sold. Never mind that not 10% of this story was true. The newspapers swallowed it hook, line and sinker. And the public did too. Without bothering to verify any of this info, a police captain in Chicago stated, There is nothing I would like better than to punish this man. My blood boiled when I heard the story told by the mother. The LA Times even went on to publish an article describing Johnson's previous marriage with this headline. How Jack Johnson tortured his white wife. The story of a beast. Why didn't Jeff kill him? Whew. You get the vibe here. Lucille quickly told anyone who would listen that she was not a victim and she wasn't anyone's slave. Unfortunately, no one cared to listen. Lucille's mom, the lawyer hired by Lucille's mom, convinced the judge to hold Lucille because she was clearly mentally unstable. What was the proof of her mental instability? The fact that, as the lawyer argued, no sane white woman could be in love with Jack Johnson and the judge promptly agreed. So eventually they convinced another judge to issue an arrest warrant for Johnson on charges of abduction. People got in the streets shouting to lynch him when he was released on bail. The chants lynch him, lynch the nigger, were all over the streets. Images of Jack Johnson hanging from poles in several cities started showing up. In Chicago, a dummy with a black face was hanged with a sign saying, this is what we will do to Jack Johnson. Somebody sent a letter to Johnson. It was sent by someone in Ohio saying that he was coming to Chicago specifically to kill him. The former state treasurer of Texas proposed that 100 Texans should travel to Chicago to lynch Johnson. Local magazine in Texas wrote the following The obnoxious stunts being featured by Jack Johnson are not only worthy of anything but an overgrown dose of southern hospitality. Clearly, again, calling for his lynching. The police gazette called him the vilest, most despicable creature that lives. He has disgusted the American public by flaunting in their faces an alliance as bold as it was offensive. In case you are wondering what is that makes him the vilest, most despicable creature that lives, and what is this alliance, they are talking about interracial relationships. Even some black journalists condemned him because of his preference for white women and his tendency to provoke whites. Booker T. Washington wrote a brutally harsh letter against Johnson in 1912, saying that all blacks were ashamed of him. Washington wrote, It is unfortunate that a man with money 
should use it in a way to injure his own people in the eyes of those who are seeking to uplift his race and improve its conditions. Chicago is now witnessing a good example of the result of educating a man to earn money without due attention having been given to his mental and spiritual development. And he went on to say, I wish to say emphatically that Jack Johnson's actions did not meet my personal approval and I am sure they do not meet with the approval of the colored race. Undoubtedly, Johnson's actions are repudiated by the great majority of right-thinking people of the Negro race. Johnson replied to all this, stating that none of the accusations are even remotely true. However, he also did emphasize the following. He said, I want to say that I'm not a slave and I have the right to choose whom my mate shall be without the dictation of any man. He also put Booker T in his place by reminding him that he really shouldn't be giving lessons in morality considering that he had been accused of being a peeping Tom. Johnson wrote, White people often point to the writings of Booker T. Washington as the best example of a desirable attitude on the part of the colored population. I've never been able to agree with the point of view of Washington, because he has to my mind not been altogether frank in the statement of the problem or courageous in the formulation of his solutions to them. On this point, Frederick Douglass' honest and straightforward program has had more of an appeal to me, because he faced the issues without compromising. Basically, this is fancy language for Johnson calling Washington an Uncle Tom. You know, many other black people criticized Washington, saying that he was jealous, that Johnson was still in his spotlight. A black lawyer named G.B. Aldridge said, just as soon as a Negro falls afoul of the white man's one-sided law, all the Negroes, like rats deserting a sinking ship, begin to outdo the white in denouncing him. So after this Johnson yelling back at him and a bit of criticism by other black people, Booker T. Washington stood chastised and didn't make any more public statements about Johnson. But regardless of this internal conflict within the black community regarding this case, you know, and when I said that Washington was jealous, Washington had been probably the most famous black person in the United States at this time, and Johnson was clearly stealing that title from him, and he represented the opposite kind of values that Washington endorsed. So no surprise that there would be conflict between those two. In either case, the legal case against Johnson was based on the idea that he had recruited women from out of state with fake job offers only to push them into prostitution. Problem with this story was that Lucille had already been a prostitute when she met Johnson and had continued her profession in Chicago. The government had been hoping that she would cooperate, that she would side with them and testify against Jack, but Lucille refused to testify, saying that she loved Johnson and wanted to marry him. She said, 
I don't care if he's white or black. I love him. The funny thing in this is that she's the supposed to be the victim that authorities are protecting. But here is where it gets weird. Authorities are the ones keeping her in prison to pressure her to turn on Jack Johnson. And when that didn't work, they kept her in prison anyway, so she wouldn't go back to Johnson, which was monstrously legal considering she had committed no crime. But the prevailing attitude among moral crusaders was that it was okay to employ illegal tactics to crush what they considered vice. And interracial relationships were definitely vice. But since they couldn't use Lucille's testimony, the case was dead. So authorities tried to figure out how else to charge him. It's like, okay, we can't bust him over the kidnapping of Lucille Cameron because we have no evidence. So what else can we do? While they thought of what else to do, they figured that in the meantime, going after Johnson's financially would be a good diversion until they could come up with a strategy for actually putting him in jail. Despite the fact that he was not convicted of anything, public opinion was against him and there was a lot of demands of boycotts against him. For example, at this time there had been plans for a very profitable tour of Australia where he was to have two or three fights, but they were cancelled because of this controversy. And again, remember that at this point he had not been convicted of anything and there wasn't one ounce of proof for any of the allegations against him. And yet he was already paying a heavy price. The city shut down his cafe, revoking its liquor license in an obvious case of legal persecution. This was a huge blow to Johnson's finances since he invested so heavily into the cafe. The cafe had been one of the most integrated places for Chicago's nightlife, but now it would be no more. So hundreds stood out in the street as the, as the orchestra played the last songs before the authorities closed down the establishment. So let's go back again to this. Why all this legal persecution? Was it really about Johnson challenging the moral standards of the day? In some way, maybe not, because the heavyweight champion John Sullivan had been a raging alcoholic, likely to punch anyone unconscious for offenses real or imagined, but no one minded. Both Sullivan and another heavyweight champion, Jim Corbett, cheated and traveled with prostitutes. Both were charged with drunken violence against women. No one cared. Jack Johnson didn't even do as much as those guys did, and yet, all this drama. Writer W.E.B. Du Bois wrote the following. Why then this thrill of national disgust? Because Johnson is black. Of course some pretend to object to Mr. Johnson's character, but we have yet to hear, in the case of white America, the marital troubles have disqualified prize fighters or ball players or even statesmen. It comes down then, after all, to this unforgivable blackness. By the way, those words which are brilliant, unforgivable blackness, 
they end up making the title of a book that was written about Johnson's life and also a brilliant documentary by Ken Burns about Johnson's life. Uh, both of those are great sources. I read the book, I watched the documentary, they do an excellent job. Not satisfied with what they had done so far, and with the fact that they weren't able to pin anything on him, the people who were after Johnson were considering how else they could get him. You know, They were furious that there was no great white hope in the boxing world who could beat him in the ring. So white supremacists had by now decided that they would have to take him down outside of the ring, and they figured that the best way to do it was a recently approved piece of legislation known as the Mann Act that was passed in 1910. Now, forgive me for the somewhat long detour that I'm about to embark on, but the Mann Act almost deserves a podcast episode on its own. Now, I'm not going to do that, but I want to at least to explore the roots and consequences of this law. And this law is going to be crucial within the Jack Johnson story. Author Jeffrey Ward wrote, Middle-class Americans everywhere fretted that more and more young single women were moving away from home and into the cities where degradation seemed to lurk around every corner. Millions were convinced that young white women were in constant danger from organized bands of cruel and wily men, immigrants mostly, intent on coercing them into becoming prostitutes or white slaves. The belief, obviously a silly one at that, was that no white woman would willingly become a prostitute, but that they were victims of some conspiracy created by evil foreigners tricking them into becoming prostitutes. The U.S. District Attorney in Chicago, Edwin Sims, was a big believer in this conspiracy. He believed in some mythical head chief of the prostitution business in the United States, who sent his agents to kidnap women to sell them into forced prostitution. He believed the agents of this head of the prostitution business in the U.S. were everywhere. Even, I quote, the ordinary ice cream parlor is very likely to be a spider's web for entanglement. An ice cream parlor run by a foreigner was twice as dangerous, as if the foreigner happened to be a Jew, even worse. Because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the US at this time, there was a lot of fear of foreigners. So this full-blown hysteria convincing people in the existence of something that simply wasn't true, you know, in some way it kind of reminds you of the McCarthy era, where the perception that communists were hiding anywhere was driving people to see conspiracy that never really existed in reality. And don't get me wrong, you know, much like in the communist example, yeah, there were communists, and yes, there were people engaged in human trafficking, but there was no mass organization targeting women to kidnap them. You know, which doesn't mean that kidnapping or sex slavery never happened, but they were incredibly rare and never so prevalent or organized as people like Seems feared. Author Jeffrey Ward again. There never was any evidence of such a network. 
you know, the reality was that 90 plus percent of prostitutes had chosen the profession and were not forced into it by anybody. As Jeffrey Ward says, but facts did not matter in the midst of what by 1909 had become a national frenzy. There was a Republican congressman named uh, James Robert Mann from Illinois had stated, the white slave traffic is much more horrible than any black slave traffic ever was in the history of the world. Now, Congressman Mann gets an F in history and in having any kind of a relationship with reality, but definitely an A-plus in hyperbolic paranoia. This kind of hyperbolic paranoia, however, pushed him into action so that he authored the Mann Act, a.k.a. the White Slave Traffic Act. What did this law do? It made illegal the transportation of women across state lines for, I quote, the purpose of prostitution of or debauchery, or for any other immoral purposes. Originally, the intent of this act was against forced prostitution and human trafficking, so against the pimps enslaving white women. And sure, I mean, that's bad. Human trafficking is horrible, so yeah, why not have laws against it? Never mind that it didn't happen, not even one-tenth of how much people believed it happened, but whatever, you know, nothing wrong with having the law. The problem is that the act was written in a, with very ambiguous language. The idea of white slavery was one part truth and 99 propaganda. You know, the commission investigating human trafficking have found very little evidence, but that was not the problem with the act. As I said, after all, if he could help in prosecuting forced prostitution where it applied, it could be useful. Clearly, sex slavery is an awful thing, so any law against it would be good. And even if it turns out that in reality sex slavery was not nearly as widespread as men and people like him believe, well, no harm done. Better to have a law against it anyway for the few cases in which it does apply. So what was the problem with the Man Act? As I hinted, the language it was written in. You know, right off the bat, rather than being applied to cases of forced prostitution, the Man Act began targeting people willingly becoming sex workers, which is clearly a very different thing from slavery. But even more problematic is the fact that fundamentalist church groups began demanding that to prosecute sex outside of marriage, so anybody crossing state lines having sex outside of marriage should be charged under the Man Act, despite the fact that the initial intent of the act was just to restrict what they call white slavery. So how do you go from a law that's supposedly against forced prostitution and sex slavery to turning it into a law that goes after anyone having sex outside of marriage and crossing state lines? Part of the reason for this is the fact that in the early 1900s there was a very fine line in people's minds between prostitution and women having sex out of marriage for no money. Now, to make the man act even more monstrous, it wasn't even needed that sex, sex actually happened. Just the intention was enough. 
to any man bringing his girlfriend across state lines committed a federal felony. So think about how quickly things change. You know, supposedly targeting sex worker and suddenly start being applied to willing prostitution, which involved thousands more people than the barely existent sex slavery. So it's not really about protecting people from a crime, but it's about imposing certain moral value. But it doesn't stop there, because quickly is extended to consensual, non-commercial sex outside of marriage, which clearly involved half of the country. So here we go with a quick change from an understandable law to be applied in just a few cases into a totalitarian puritanical law that could potentially be applied to indict half of the country in 1910 became obvious from the start that the law would be unenforceable, since the way too many people broke this law. So rather than getting rid of the law, prosecutors decided to only use it when they wanted to go after someone, but they couldn't get them for any other reason. So Charlie Chaplin, you know, the actor Charlie Chaplin, for being a communist, for example, you know, you couldn't go after him for his politics, but hey, if he violated the Man Act, let's use it. And of course, Jack Johnson. The Man Act wasn't supposed to be aimed at individuals, but to criminal organization. But the meaning of the law changed in order to go after people that the government didn't like, such as Jack Johnson. Author Randy Roberts write, James Robert Mann was a Republican congressman known for his strongly puritanical attitudes. And then the Mann Act was an act that allowed government to supervise America's sexual behavior. This kind of repressing Puritanism mixed with a desire to impose by law one's standards of, mora of morality on everyone else, these two things were very popular most everywhere in the US at this time. Same was true in Chicago. In October of 1909, an evangelist named uh, Gypsy Smith led thousands of people through the Vice District in Chicago, singing hymns in front of brothels and praying for their closure. By 1912, 5,000 people were marching, asking the state's attorney of Cook County to close the Vice District. And the state's attorney did exactly what they asked for. So tons of police went door-to-door, door kicking everyone out. Hundreds of prostitutes were kicked out from the brothels being closed. And they, you know, guess where they go? They turned to walking the streets and falling praise to pimps, which led, of course, to more violence against women involved after the crackdown that was supposedly designed to protect them than before. The Man Act gave the Justice Department the perfect excuse to use something against Johnson. The Justice Department sent agents everywhere to find someone, anyone, who would give them something to bring down Johnson. Any evidence would do. So this is... Think about how weird it is. This is not a case of a crime being committed and authorities looking for the guilty party. But it's a case of authorities wanting someone to be guilty of something and looking for any possible crime that he could be accused of. 
In this case, they found help from one of Johnson's former lovers, Belle Schreiber. She was threatened with jail if she wouldn't cooperate. Add, you know, this element to the fact that she was jealous of Lucille Cameron. She was scared of jail. So she agreed and told lots of information to investigators. So now they had a new case they could open against Johnson. When asked if she had ever loved Johnson, Schreiber responded, I don't believe I did. I don't believe I ever knew what love was. The problem here was not that, you know, it wasn't that clear that Johnson had violated some laws. You know, she had been his mistress, not someone forced into prostitution. As this was happening, by the way, Johnson was invited for a tour of Russia, but he refused because he didn't want to leave Lucille in jail. So there was some mutual loyalty there between the two. So the charge against Johnson was that he had transported Bell Schreiber across state lines for prostitution, even though it was voluntary prostitution. Now, since by now they did not need Lucille anymore, authorities let her go. Um, they arrested Johnson to indict him on these charges on, based on Bell Schreiber's testimony. But, you know, he paid bail and the moment he got out, he did the one thing that was clearly not designed to lower the degree of hatred that many people were feeling for him. The second he got out, he married Lucille Cameron. At the wedding, reporters asked her, where's your mom? To which Lucille replied, I don't know and I don't care. Some sources suggest that the marriage to Lucille was only done so that she wouldn't be able to testify against him, but this is obviously not true since she wasn't part of the legal case against Johnson anymore. White supremacist went insane. You know, he had married another white woman. So all over there were calls for lynching Johnson. Many Southern ministers made it a big part of their Sunday speeches. The governor of Virginia called the wedding a desecration of one of our most sacred rights. The governor of New York said it's a blot on our civilization. Governor Goldsboro said the Johnson marriage would never have been allowed in Maryland. We protect our white girls. Governor of South Carolina said the black brute who lays his hands upon a white woman ought not to have any trial, and all the white manhood of South Carolina wants to know is that they have the right man and that they will have no trial. If we cannot protect our white women from black fiends, where is our boasted civilization? Our old friend, congressman from Georgia, Seaborn Rodenberry, the guy who had said some monstrously racist thing we quoted earlier, said, No brutality, no infamy, no degradation in all the years of southern slavery possess such a villainous character and such atrocious qualities as the provision of the laws of Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, and other states which allow the marriage of the Negro Jack Johnson 
to a woman of Caucasian strain. And he continued, Intermarriage between whites and blacks is repulsive and averse to every sentiment of pure American spirit. It is abhorrent and repugnant to the very principles of a pure Saxon government. It is subversive to social peace. It is destructive of moral supremacy. And ultimately the slavery of white women to black beasts will bring this nation to a conflict as fatal and as bloody as ever reddened the soil of Virginia or crimsoned the mountain paths of Pennsylvania. And here is where the good part comes in. He finished, Let us uproot and exterminate now this debasing, ultra-demoralizing, un-American and inhuman leprosy. Now, clearly these guys are a little confused about what slavery means. You know, in this guy's vocabulary, a white woman who chose to marry a black man was not really freely choosing, she was a slave. This guy simply could not accept the idea that some white women may prefer a black man to a white one, so laws had to be enacted to prevent this free choice from happening. The same congressman introduced a constitutional amendment to ban interracial marriages at the federal level. There was some support for this, just not enough for this to become law. W.E. Du Bois disagreed with Johnson marrying a white woman, but he defended his right to do so. So there was some support for Johnson here. Now, angry at all this persecution against him, Johnson added fuel to the fire by announcing his intent to buy a house in the wealthiest summer colony of the white Chicago elites. He wanted a house close to the house of the president of the Illinois Trust and Savings Banks. In the end, he didn't get it. Now, he probably never really wanted to get it in the first place. He probably was just saying it to get on the nerves of those people who wanted to keep him down. His trial took place in 1913. The Chicago Daily News reported that he walked into the trial completely unafraid, as if the prosecutors, the police, and the law itself couldn't touch him. The reporter was clearly annoyed at Johnson's smug confidence. He wrote, The Negro strolled into the courtroom half an hour late, carrying a long black cigar in his mouth, and smiling every step. Johnson was mad that many former acquaintances and even friends were now going to testify against him. The prosecutor told the all-white male jury that if they didn't find him guilty, they could never look straight in the faces of their wives, mothers and daughters again. And so accordingly, the jury found him guilty despite the fact that his violation of the Mann Act had actually taken place in 1909 and early 1910 before the Mann Act became law. So let that sink in for a second, never mind how silly the law was. But even weirder is that he was being convicted for something that was perfectly legal when he did it. And the, the prosecutor clarified that this wasn't really about 
the Mann Act or anything else. He said that this was the first step to abolishing interracial marriages. And he even admitted that Johnson may have been persecuted, but it was to rectify the horror of laws allowing interracial sex. Quote from the prosecutor said, This verdict will go around the world. It is the forerunner of laws to be passed in these United States, which we may live to see. Laws for pigdin, mis, I never know how to pronounce this word, misgenation, mis, in any case, interracial marriages, that's basically what it means. And he continues, this Negro, in the eyes of many, has been persecuted. Perhaps as an individual he was, but it was his misfortune to be the foremost example of the evil in permitting the intermarriage of whites and blacks. Think about this. The prosecutors admit to persecuting Johnson, but he just say, well, it's for the greater good of abolishing interracial marriages, so it's all good. So it's pretty clear that what Johnson was really guilty of was dating white women or marrying white women and beating up white men in the ring. As Johnson himself said, my real crime was beating Jim Jeffries. In the eyes of his enemy, he was primarily guilty of challenging accepted racial norms. The judge said that plenty of times there have been men convicted under the Mann Act and they paid a fine and no jail time, but he openly stated he wanted to make an example of Johnson. So in June 1913, he sentenced Johnson to one year in jail and a $1,000 fine. He would be free pending appeal. Both his mom and Lucille didn't want to see him jailed, so they urged him to flee the United States. Problem was, the feds were following him everywhere. And so there are a few legends about what happens next. One story is that he camouflaged himself by wearing the uniform of an all-black baseball team that was visiting Chicago at the time and boarded a train with them, so he escaped the feds that way. Jack Johnson's mom and his sister, they said that he was actually a little different story. They said that they had bribed some officers to let Johnson go. Some historians believe that some of these stories were made up to conceal the people who actually helped him escape. No one knows for sure. There's another story that Johnson told that he had personally bribed the prosecutor and the Chicago Borough chief to let him escape. Now, there is some evidence that something like that may have happened. But again, it's hard to be sure. Either way, Johnson escaped and went to Canada with his nephew Gus Rhodes to meet Lucille there. The three of them would always travel together for the next few years. They refer to themselves as the Three Musketeers. One of their first stops was Paris. It was there at the end of 1913 that Johnson fought a black boxer, not as dangerous as some of the other black boxers ranked above him, curiously named Jim Johnson. So we have the Jack Johnson versus Jim Johnson match. The first ever heavyweight title fight between two black boxers. 
fight is a big word. I mean, it looked more like an exhibition than a fight, and John, Jack Johnson let it go the distance. Johnson said that he had actually broken his arm earlier on, so that's why he had not been able to truly fight to his abilities. But in either case, Johnson found himself less than welcome in France, England, and barred from entering Sweden. Many hotels would refuse him admission. A reverend in England referred to him as the black threat to order and decency. That's quite... that would make a title for a good autobiography. The black threat to order and decency. Sounds like something cool to put on your business cards. In England, Johnson wanted to keep doing his shows, but some other actors were mad about the idea of him being allowed to perform. Author Finis Farr wrote, We might bear in mind that most of these people were pitiably lacking in talent and barely earned a living with their moth-eaten costumes, feeble dances and vapid songs. Basically, he's saying they are just jealous of Johnson. During one performance, the crowd booed some of the actresses who had spoken out against Johnson offstage, but it was still very difficult to find enough gigs. So, again, for the sake of making some money, he took a wrestling match against a Russian in France. Not all that clear if this was a legitimate fight or a stage exhibition. In 1914, he had a fight for the title against uh, Frank Moran in Paris. Now, there's some drama surrounding this fight. Keep in mind that what I'm about to tell you is based on rumors and no one knows if it's truth or legend. Story goes that Johnson met with Moran beforehand and told him that he was out of shape, he would back out of the fight and no one would make money unless they came to an agreement. Moran panicked because he needed the money badly. Johnson said, look, I don't feel like training hard, so the only way we fight is if we put, we put on a good back-and-forth battle and then you take a dive in the eighth round. Supposedly, Moran accepted, but had a conversation with the promoter and together they decided to tell Johnson the fight was on once they were in the ring and it would be too late to back out. Again, who knows whether that's the truth or not, but in any case, in the fifth round, they clinched, and Moran went for a clean break, but Johnson grabbed his head with one hand and threw a huge uppercut that broke Moran's nose. Once, Moran managed to rock Johnson, but Johnson replied, That's the way, Frankie boy. You work on that punch, and you get real good, and one day you'll be champion. This was the classic Jack Johnson teasing his opponents. He later responded to another good blow by clapping for Moran and saying, My sincere congratulations, Frank. Johnson's ability to talk crap even when facing difficulties is hilarious. In either case, he won a decision after 20 rounds. Moran got mad because he said that Johnson got all the purse money, including what was supposed to be his own money. 
And some people argue that this was Johnson's revenge for Moran backing out of the fixed fight deal. So what's the world coming to? Can't even rely on people when they give you the reward that they will help you cheat fair and square? This actually is not what happened, though. Moral was wrong. What happened was that the money, what happened to the money was more complicated. The promoter of the fight was a guy named uh, McCatrick. He had wanted to manage Moran's career, but Moran had refused to sign a contract. So the promoter had used that fact, you know, that he had advanced a little money to Moran as an excuse to get a lawyer to freeze the fight purse until he would get his money back from Moran. Okay, so what does that have to do with Johnson? Well, the fight took place on June 27th, 1914. Why is this date important? Because the next day, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, was killed by Yugoslav nationalist Gavrilo Princip. As I'm sure most of you are aware, this would be the spark that would ignite World War I. The lawyer hired by McCatrick was immediately enlisted in the French army, so there was no way to unfreeze the money until he came back. Here is how author Finis Farr described the situation. McCatrick's lawyer was among the reservists who took up arms and in the excitement he left without giving his client the necessary papers to get the box office money from the Bank of France. When McKentrick cooled down and applied for the money, the bank officials told, me, told him they had no authority to release it. It had taken McKentrick four weeks to get into a mood to talk business with Dorgan and Moran, and by this time World War I had broken out. And so the settlement would have to wait until the lawyer got back to Paris on furlough. But the lawyer never got back. He was killed in one of the first engagements. So as a result of this, this became the only heavyweight title fight in the modern era in which no one was paid. With World War I breaking out, Johnson's chances to make money in Europe started disappearing. So despite the win, Johnson realized that his career was on the downslope. Not only was he a little less fast than he used to be, but there was also, he had less fire, less desire. You know, in some way, this is the champion's course. It's very hard to stay motivated and stay on top. While visiting Russia in 1914, Johnson met an African-American named George Thomas, who had emigrated there a few years before. Thomas had become a business owner and made tons of money in St. Petersburg, and also becoming a leading sport promoter. He also owned an amusement park. According to Johnson, Thomas at a party introduced him to Rasputin, which, that's an interesting historical encounter, the meeting of Jack Johnson and Rasputin. But more important, at a later date, Thomas handed Johnson some documents that were to be kept safe and taken out of Russia. They were the private correspondence between the German Kaiser and the Russian Tsar. Later on, you know, months later, when Johnson reached London, someone broke into his apartments and didn't take anything except for those very papers. 
So here we have even drawn some plain uh, international spy kind of thing. In any case, he got out of Russia, managed to cross Europe during the early phases of World War I. There were lots of crazy adventures along the way, including crashing a car and finding himself in the midst of a stampede of 4,000 horses destined for war. With few options in Europe and none in the United States, Johnson looked for another title fight. At the end of 2014, he had won by KO against a certain Jack Murray in Argentina. But he still badly needed money. He hadn't made that much, and plus he spent a lot of money. So he accepted a fight against Jess Willard for early 1915. Willard was known as a gentle giant from Kansas. He was about 6'6", often about 250 pounds, at a huge reach. He, in an earlier bout, he had killed an opponent. But despite that, you know, or maybe because of that, who knows, for the most part, he always tried not to hurt his opponents too much. He didn't really want to be a boxer, actually. He had turned to boxing mainly due to poverty. He once said, God made me a giant. I never received an education, never had any money. I knew that I was a big fellow and powerful strong. I just sat down and figured that a man as big as me ought to be able to cash in on the road to boxing. And he also said, I never liked boxing, but there was money in it. I needed the money and decided to go after it. Initially, the plan was to have Johnson and Willard fight in Mexico. While they were waiting for everything to be confirmed, Johnson toured Latin America, going to Brazil, Buenos Aires, Argentina, doing mainly strongman stunts. You know, he would do the shows breaking chains by flexing muscles, lifting up to four men up in the air, dragging a team of horses, things like that. But things in Mexico were more complicated than anybody had anticipated. The rivalry between legendary bandit Pancho Villa and the president Carranza had complicated the negotiations quite a bit. Juarez, the proposed venue for the fight, was in the hands of the revolutionary Pancho Villa. Villa asked the promoter for a cut in exchange for allowing the fight, and the promoter agreed. The problem was getting Johnson to Juarez, because in order to do that, he would have to pass through a port controlled by the legitimate governor of Mexico under President Carranza, who hated Villa, and so Carranza threatened to have Johnson arrested and sent to the U.S. Johnson actually thought all of this was amusing. He wrote... What an unusual circumstance that while I feared to return to my own country, one of the most notorious revolutionary leaders of Mexico, Villa, was making frantic efforts to finance my return to the Western Hemisphere and was attempting to stage in Mexico the championship fight between myself and Willard. Isn't that funny? Johnson had a colorful life, for sure. You go from having a party in... Uh, in Russia with Rasputin to ending up with Pancho Villa wanting to stage your fight. It's, it's a wild life. But excessive political instability was 
the norm in Mexico, so they decided instead to have the fight in Cuba. The U.S. consul there protested the staging of the fight and sent letters to Washington to have an official statement by the U.S. government against it. But the Secretary of State at this time was uh, Williams Jenning Bryans, who was a friend of the promoter, so nothing came of it. Now, there's a little controversy in the sources about Bryan's role, whether he really played a big role or not, but in any case. In exchange for Johnson agreeing to the fight, the promoter had to use his contacts to negotiate with the government to see if Johnson could be allowed back in the United States, pay a fine, but no jail time. But the very day after his agents approached federal officials about it, on February 18, 1915, the film Birth of a Nation was screened at the White House. The movie portrayed the KKK as heroes and blacks in horrible ways. So at the White House you had President Wilson, his cabinet and the Supreme Court all watching the movie and they all loved it. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at this time had ridden with the KKK and Birth of a Nation would become the top movie in the US and would lead to an actual rebirth of the KKK. So clearly the cultural climate in the US was not such as to be particularly friendly to a man like Jack Johnson. So in April of 1915, the fight took place in Cuba. Johnson didn't really train a whole lot for the fight. You know, he had been in the habit of doing that lately. He was kind of parting it up too much, as champions are known to do, and not putting in enough work. During the fight, around the ring, there were guards with guns and machetes. So that's another wild match right there. You're like, while you climb into the ring to fight, you have these guys with machetes and guns all around the ring to keep the crowd under control. So Johnson was neither well-trained or conditioned, very far from the shape he had been in when he had defeated Jeffries. On top of that, Willard was much bigger and 10 years younger. Johnson at this time was 37 years old. The temperature was 105 Fahrenheit. Really, really hot. In the early going, Johnson was able to crack Willard hard. And he commented in his usual hilarious fashion, I devoutly hope I didn't happen to hurt you, Jess. For the first eight rounds, Johnson dominated. But his usually great stamina started going away. Problem was that this was not a 12-round fight or a 15-round fight. This was scheduled for 45 rounds. Talk about brutal. He nearly finished Willard in the 16th round with his trademark uppercut. So for the first 16, he, if the first eight he outright dominated, the next eight he's still winning decisively. He won almost every round. The problem was that by round 20 he was tired and Willard was not. In a 20-round fight, Johnson would have won a comfortable decision. But fatigue was about to turn about around. During the breakup for the 25th round, 
Johnson sent a message to Lucille who was sitting at ringside to walk out. Some people say that Johnson knew he was done and didn't want her to see the end. Other people say that Johnson had sold the fight. The rumor is that the promoter had told him that if he lost the fight, his conviction would be dropped. Other people say that he was simply past his prime. Johnson was visibly tired and clearly not ready to last 45 rounds. He had dominated the first 20, but he was done. He defeated himself due to not training hard enough. So by round 26, Wheeler dropped Johnson. While on the floor, Johnson shielded his eyes from the sun, showing that he was not KO'd, and this led to all sorts of conspiracy theories using these to say he was fine and he threw the fight. Now, he certainly wasn't unconscious, that much is clear, but he was probably far from fine. Initially after the defeat, Johnson said, Willard was too much for me, I just didn't have it. But later he said he threw the fight. Now, maybe it's true, maybe it's likely that's just, that's just Johnson making up an excuse for the loss. Boxers threw fights all the time, and some people thought it would be better to be accused of having thrown a fight than of actually having lost it. Personally, I don't think he threw the fight. Uh, he had telegraphed his friends telling him to bet on him. That's not the action of someone about to throw a fight. I think he just lost. Willard said it best. He said, if he was going to throw the fight, I wish he had done it sooner. He was hotter than hell out there. Johnson had reigned as the top heavyweight for seven years. And... For the next several years, no other black fighter would be allowed to fight for any title, and it would be 15 years before one would be allowed to fight for the heavyweight title. So, after seven years, he had lost his crown. Johnson went to England with Lucille, punched his theatrical manager in a dispute over money and was kicked out of the country, possibly because of a pro-German speech that he delivered while drunk. Not a good idea in the middle of World War I. He was attacking the streets by unknown assailants, but he defended himself well, even though he was outnumbered, and he ended up receiving the help of a couple of cops who also helped him. For a while he traveled to Spain and had a few fights against lesser boxers and he dominated them all. Among them was the poet Arthur Craven, who was inspired by the works of Rambeau and Baudelaire. He made some money wrestling bouts, acting. He, he offered to fight in World War I in exchange for a pardon, but he was not allowed. One of the stories that Johnson tells is that the American embassy in Spain accepted to have him help stop German submarine crews from taking cargoes and supplies from supporters in Spain. This at least is what Johnson says. And supposedly he fought and knocked out a guy trying to stab him with a knife during this one of these operations stopping submarine German submarine crews from landing in Spain. Now very possible that this is a made-up story. Possible that it's real? Who knows? In any case. 
One thing that he did do is he tried his hand at bullfighting for a little bit. But, you know, none of these things were pain enough to keep his lifestyle afloat. In the meantime, his mom had died in Chicago, and he was really bummed out about not being able to attend the funeral. He again started drinking heavy at this time, and moved to Mexico. He had continued having a few fights over there and crushed all the low-level opponents. He was way past his prime, but not so past his prime that he couldn't deal with lower-level fighters. In Mexico they treated him well, since there was at this time political tension between Mexico and the United States, so they were only too happy to treat well someone who was hated in the US. In one occasion, when an American restaurant owner in Mexico City refused to serve Johnson, Johnson returned with some top Mexican generals a few minutes later, and the generals told the restaurant owner that Mexico was not a whites-only country and he couldn't discriminate there, so they forced him to apologize and serve them anyway. In another occasion, Johnson took matters in his own hands. In a restaurant, some visiting American businessmen made racist jokes loud enough to make sure he would hear them. Without even opening his mouth to protest, Johnson landed an uppercut on the loudest of them, separating him from consciousness. This guy, after he woke up from the knockout, later tried to sue Johnson, but Mexican authorities laughed at him, saying that Johnson had done what any self-respecting man would have done in the face of such insults. To make a little money, Johnson opened a saloon in Tijuana, and was protected by the Mexican government at this time. He even became president, he, I'm sorry, he became friends with that president Carranza I mentioned earlier. And Carranza supposedly said about Johnson, you're a man of experience, Mr. Johnson, and you have met all sorts of people. I would rather listen to you than hear an oration from a professional politician. I can learn more from you. Problem was, President Carranza had to flee because one of his former generals, Alvaro Obregón, was staging a successful rebellion. Carranza warned Johnson to get out since he expected a wave of persecution against all of, his all of the friends of his administrations. Carranza himself ended up being caught and murdered. So Jack Johnson's status in Mexico changed overnight and he fled. He boarded a boat that was smuggling Chinese immigrants below deck He and started getting out. Now, the political instability in Mexico was nuts, like even Obregón himself was later murdered by another rival faction. So in 1920, Johnson made a deal with American authorities to return to the United States. He drove himself to the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, and the superintendent for the prison was his old buddy, the former governor of Nevada, Denver Dickerson, who had switched job, and, you know, Dickerson treated him very well while Johnson would serve time in prison. He gave him a job as a prison physical director. He allowed even to, He even allowed him to have boxing fights in prison. 
during one of these occasions, Johnson beat two fighters in the same day. Guys were being brought in from the outside, specifically for the fights. Inmates loved him there during the year he spent in jail. So by 1921, he was a free man. His conviction, you know, he was done. He, he had done his time and it was over. So there were huge celebrations by his friends when he got out, and these did a lot to lift his spirits. Lucille was still waiting for him. In Chicago, the black newspapers welcomed him home. One of them, it was written, you're suffering because of your black skin. You whipped the white man's hope. That was your undoing, and we're proud of you. Being... As most fighters, Johnson liked to boast a bit, so he kept saying that he wanted to fight Dempsey. Jack Dempsey was the man who had defeated Jess Willard, and now he was the heavyweight champion. Now, Dempsey is a wild character. He he would make for a good podcast on his own. He was real. Wow, talk about a savage fighter. Problem was, Dempsey wouldn't fight Johnson or any other black fighter, and realistically, Johnson probably would have never been able to hang at the top level anymore. So they decided, Dempsey was like, sorry, it's not going to happen, we're not fighting. So Johnson fought many lower-level fighters, beating them all, and a few not so low-level. At 48 years old, 48 years old, he demolished a very decent contender who was half his age. He lost a few fights between 1926 and 1931 and then picked up a couple more wins. He kept fighting well into his 50s and even had an exhibition fight into his 60s. You know, there are some cases since then, people like George Foreman, Bernard Hopkins, in MMA people like Randy Couture who were able to fight long after the time when most people are able to fight at a high level. Now, it's still uncommon today, but it was super uncommon back when Jack Johnson did it. As he wrote, There has been no one to reach my age with his skill and strength intact. So it was true that Johnson was a freak. You know, he was able to do something, you know, in his 40s and 50s that was insane for the time. You know, boxers... You're a boxer in your late teens, in your 20s. By your early 30s, you're pretty much done. Boxing in his 50s at a high level? That was crazy. He also fought a bunch of fights only for private audiences, which never showed up on his official record. You know, All in all, his boxing career was amazing. You know, The boxing publication The Ring, which is kind of a boxing bible, stated, Jack Johnson is the greatest heavyweight of all time. And the editor of Ring Magazine added, I have no hesitation in naming Jack Johnson as the greatest of them all. Aside from his boxing legacy, his life continued to be eventful outside of the ring as well. He had wanted to play Othello on Broadway, which seems rather fitting. He had briefly worked at the Warner Brothers lot in Los Angeles. Starting in 1920, he ran a nightclub in Harlem, and by 1923 he sold it to the gangster Oni Madden, who turned it into the legendary Cotton Club, 
which became the stomping ground for artists like Duke Ellington, Cav Calloway and Louis Armstrong. His marriage to Lucille ended in divorce in 1924 due to Jack's infidelity. Lucille never sold her story to the newspapers, and you know, despite their highly unconventional lifestyle, they had truly loved each other. You know, not so much as to actually be sexually faithful, something that Jack Johnson was pretty much incapable of, but still love each other. For a while, he was quite bent out of shape about the end of his marriage, so he started drinking heavy again and had a few car accidents in a relatively short period of time. He remarried the following year with another white woman, white woman, white wife number three, who would remain with him for the rest of his life, the recently divorced Irene Marie Pinot. I'm completely taking a guess on the, how to pronounce the name, by the way, I have no idea. He met her at the races, which seemed to be the main place where Jack would meet non-sex workers. And this was another lady who clearly loved him a lot. She had said, Regardless of the many promises I had made myself to stay away from a second marriage for quite some time, because of the bitterness and unhappiness of my first venture, I now knew that nothing could have kept me from marrying Jack Johnson at the earliest possible moment. To any of the people who might be a bit skeptical about marrying a a man of a different race, let me say that there could not be a man of any race in the world more worthy of being loved than is my husband. So that worked out. Good for him. Johnson also opened the gym, trained some boxers, sold whiskey. He did all sorts of things. The next major black heavyweight champion to become, you know, first to become a champion, but before that even just to become a highly respected contender was Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis had to cast himself into kind of the opposite of Jack Johnson, the anti-Jack Johnson, in order not to be lynched and be allowed to fight without attracting the same hatred that Johnson had attracted. So, Joe Louis' managers turned down Jack Johnson's offers to train Lewis. Johnson was very insulted by this, so he told the newspaper that he believed that Max Schmeling would beat Lewis, and told everyone how it could be done. And curiously enough, Lewis' German opponent did exactly as Johnson had said. Jess Willard said this of Johnson. He said, On the form he showed at 37 when I fought him, he could have handled Joe Lewis and Billy Conn simultaneously. Some people thought that, yeah, Johnson had been way superior to Joe Lewis. Later in life, he said that he, I quote, found God and was quite content with his lot in life harboring a grudge against no man. So he kind of became a Christian, but, you know, he mixed it with other things he liked. He liked Buddhism, he liked other traditions. It's sort of unusual for someone with a violent streak who had been at the center of legal persecution and public hatred, somebody so controversial and wild, to find a way to be at peace and have a mellow life. 
but Jones apparently did that. He wrote, In looking back over the years of my tumultuous career, I'm astounded when I realize that there are few men in any period of the world's history who have led a more varied or more intense experience than I. In his autobiography, after listing several of the wildest events in his life, he added, there are countless others, because I have lived rapidly, intensely, eagerly. Speaking of rapid and intense, he kept driving fast cars on a regular basis, and he, he stated, I must confess to having a weakness for fast driving. And that is what did he mean. In 1946, shortly after a restaurant in North Carolina refused to serve him, you know, yet again racism showing up in his life, Johnson was driving when he had an accident and died at the age of 68. He was buried next to his first wife, Etta Durea Johnson. It is said that Muhammad Ali you know, the greatest, the most, probably most famous heavyweight boxer of all times, one of the lead candidates for the title of greatest heavyweight boxers ever, along with people like Rocky Marciano or Mike Tyson. Mohamed Ali went to watch the Broadway play The Great White Hope about Jack Johnson, and he stated that he was clearly inspired by Jack, and he identified with him. Miles Davis in 1971, the musician Miles Davis, if you guys are not familiar with him, one of the gods of, uh, even say the gods of jazz is reductive, because Miles Davis did some music that was way past the confines of jazz, but he considered Johnson an idol and dedicated an album to him, appropriately entitled Jack Johnson. After his death, when asked what had, what was it that had attracted her to Johnson? The last of his three wives, Irene Pinot, surprisingly didn't mention any cool deals or distant thoughts, for that reference check episode 2. Instead she said, I loved him because of his courage. He faced the world unafraid. There wasn't anybody or anything he feared and commenting about his own life. Shortly before dying, Johnson had told the reporter, just remember, whatever you write about me, that I was a man.
So this is a wrap on the Jack Johnson story. A new episode will be coming to you sooner than you expect, thanks to Blue Apron, because these guys have asked me to produce a few extra this year. So in about two to three weeks, I think you'll have a new story awaiting you. A new History on Fire episode will be in. Now, let me say thank you to a few folks, starting with a listener. Big thank you to Mark Blanchett, or I'm taking a complete wild guess on the last name. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Thank you so much for sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at a $50 level. The prize you get is to have your name horribly mispronounced with my heavy Italian accent, but you also have my deep thanks. Thank you also to Flavia. Flavia is the world's largest online club of spirits enthusiasts. What they do is every quarter members receive a complimentary themed tasting box of spirits. So the way it works is that you get to try a bunch of different spirits every quarter, see if any of them hits you the right way, where you do, there's one that you really particularly like, and then if you like it, then you can order a full bottle. So really can go wrong. You get to try before you commit to buying a bottle. Uh, in this way, you kind of Flavia helps you develop your personal taste and make sure you make the right purchases. So having said that, these guys also have... Uh, uh, they do private bottlings, they give uh, access to the vault every so often, which means access to their extremely rare and hard-to-find spirits that they have assembled to make it available to members only. These guys usually have a long waiting list, but they have arranged priority access for History on Fire listeners. So please go to flaviar.com forward slash exclusive and use the coupon code HISTORY. Again, that's F-L-A-V-I-A-R dot com forward slash exclusive and use the coupon code HISTORY. Also a big thank you to Vincero, our new sponsor for this episode. These guys produce high-quality watches for affordable prices. So if you are in the market for a watch but you don't want to spend crazy money, you can do no better than check these guys out. Uh, they have over 5,000 five-star reviews, they offer free first-class shipping, and they have a two-year warranty on their products. So if you want to check their amazing collection, visit getthewatch.net. Again, that's getthewatch.net. And if you use the promo code HISTORY, you will receive 15% off your very own Vincero watch. So go to getthewatch.net and use the code HISTORY. You have heard me mention the podcast How It Began, A History of the Modern World by Brad Harris. As I mentioned in the past, Brad holds a PhD in the history of science and technology from Stanford, and he had decided to start this podcast that basically covers the most important scientific, technological, and cultural advancements in the history of humanity. So, you know the drill with podcasts, they are free. You don't even have to commit money to check if you like something, so give Brad's work a listen, check it out, see if it's to your liking. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you happen to listen or check out his website at howitbegan.com. 
While we are at it, big huge thank you to Blue Apron. You have heard me mention just a few minutes ago how it's thanks to Blue Apron that this year in 2018 you're gonna be getting more episodes than I had anticipated releasing. So Blue Apron's got two great things going for them right there. They sponsor History on Fire and basically giving you guys a bunch of free episodes that I wasn't really planning to do otherwise. And on top of it, they make amazing food and they deliver it right to your door. That's not a bad deal, is it? And I can vouch for the high quality of the food. I've been eating it religiously for the last year plus. Excellent quality, excellent variety. Check them out. You, know, you can take advantage of the offer that Blue Apron is making to History on Fire listeners. They will take $30 of your first dinner at if you visit blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. One of the companies that have been with me from day one is Datsusara. These guys have the best hemp gear out there. They produce uh, bags, whether backpacks or computer bags or travel bags. They produce, um, like I'm wearing right now a Datsusara hoodie. That's awesome. I love this thing. I'm just wearing it nonstop. They make all sorts of things made of hemp. They have... uh, I think they were, I can't remember if they just released it or they're about to release this line of gear for dogs, so leashes and harness, um, all made of hemp. Lots of great products there, so check them out at dsgear.com. Again, the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. And speaking of companies that have had my back for a long time now, check out onnit.com forward slash history that's o-n-n-i-t dot com forward slash history this guy's mix it's hard to say one thing that they mix they make so many good products and not all under the same category they make supplements they make uh, health foods they sell fitness equipment uh, clothing all sort of great stuff uh, among their health foods I really like the protein bars they sell. I really like the MCT oil. Um, It's very special, high-quality oil. They sell protein powders that are very good. They And this is just, you know, I can go on the list and it would take me forever to go through all their products. So I'm just mentioning a few things here and there. Easiest thing you can do is just go check them out for yourself at onnit.com forward slash history and see if there's something that in their catalog that you can make use of. Having said all this, I will now just leave you until the next time, wishing you a very good day. Mm-hmm.